Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Invasion of the Podcasters, what we're calling episode 5, after last episode was split into two parts due to their technical error, um, but uh, we're up and running, hopefully going to get it all wrapped up in one there for you guys this time. Um, this is Graham, um, I also along with me have got Simon. Hello guys, Simon here, I'm going to be your resident expert in some of the more obscure streaming services such as Mubi and Shudder, both of which I will be looking at today. Also with us, we've got Scott. Scott here, I'm the everyman of the podcast. I'm looking at um, the basic streaming services that are Netflix and Amazon Prime. A lot of people have one or the other, so I'll be bringing you what's good from them. Sorry to call you into question there, Scott, but I'm more of the everyman than you are. I'm doing free view and what you can do free to wear, but hey ho. <laughs> What does that make me? <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're the premium. You're the high end. You, you're champagne and caviar. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm the everyman, please. Um, where I'll look at um, what's on TV, what's on free to wear. Scott is your um, standard, so more common subscription based Netflix and Amazon. Then you've got Simon, who's going to be looking at your more obscure, um, let's say, what your Ferraris and your Lamborghinis of this world. <laughs> yeah, I watch everything with a monocle on, so uh, that's me. And uh, just to say, I was dropping in Lamborghini and uh, Ferrari there, just so I get a name drop and see if I can get some cars on the free from this. <laughs> All about the blag. Anyhow, but we always start each episode, as well as a bit of introductions in a roundabout way, uh, we always start off by covering news. And uh, this week is obviously about the news of cinemas um, starting to reopen. Um, yay. Sort of timescales, yay. And uh, what the sort of first sort of incarnations of what it's going to look like. So uh, really, we're just going to have a bit of a discussion over what we all think over it and what our hopes are for it going forward. I mean, it was yourself, Simon, who sort of picked up and wanted to focus on the subject. So what are your feelings on it? Well, I'm a bit scared for my life of going into a dark room with x amount of other people at the moment so what i think i'm gonna do even though most cinema chains well most of the uh major ones anyway they open on the 4th of july i think i'm gonna wait until films actually start coming out as well just to see how things get going i also don't want to bear the brunt of the second wave by going to the cinema too early so i think i'm gonna wait for mulan to come out because that, I think, is the first sort of major studio release to have a release date. I think that's coming out on the, it's the 24th or the 25th of July. I'll just double-check that. But, uh, I think a lot of people are holding out there. They're saying that Tenet's going to be the, the big one as the sort of barometer on how people go about it, because there's a lot of talk where they're going to be, studios are going to be re-releasing classics. So it's like an anniversary release of Empire Strikes Back. That's going to be coming out. Um, so of a lot of old things to that familiarity of getting people back into the cinemas before launching new films. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. Um, but the whole thing about going to the cinema is seeing things that I've never seen before, want to be blown away by something new. And as much as if there's a film that I've not seen before at the cinema, or even if it's something that I have seen that it's something I cherish, I would go back to see films that I've seen before on the big screen. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. It's very early days. It's going to have to see how individual cinemas treat the guidelines and how you hear news of how it's been controlled so it's really hard to judge how about yourself scott i mean i'd be tempted to get one up to get a suit like i'm i'm going to defuse a bomb in the hurt locker uh just put on a big mask and everything you know just just in case just be on this on the safe side but uh to be honest i'll 
I also want to see what the procedures are going to be before I commit to going to the cinema again, mm-hmm. just to make sure that there's a, there are safe procedures, that those procedures are being received well. Um, but I do look forward to going back to the cinema and like Sam, uh, we'll be waiting for the new releases just to see what going to the cinema is like in these new circumstances. That being said, though, now you've mentioned Empire Strikes Back, I've never seen that on a big screen, so I'm kind of tempted. Yeah, I think I went to see when uh, they did the whole relaunching of them at the cinemas when George Lucas had his uh, tinkering oh, uh, with the digital he had effects. had his way with his own movies. Yeah, so I went to see them all when they got relaunched. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to see what... It would be lovely to see what edition or what version they play of it. If that's going to be like an original remastered but without the digital editions, that might be worthwhile. That would be one for the fanboys to go back to see, so... That that is true, but I think it's more than likely going to be the nineteen ninety seven editions yeah, because more, more than likely uh, they've actually just released those in four uh, K. Ah, okay. Uh, the Zafi, I think they had a limited steelbook run of uh, the four K Ultra HD of the original trilogy and of the uh, prequel trilogy as well. Ah, yes, true, true, true. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see. It's it's really hard to sort of gauge. Um, it's going to be a lot of hearing new stories of what first comes out of screenings and how cinemas are doing it. And as well, the, we're talking about big multiplexes here, but we all are passionate about independent cinemas. Um, so I know that we've got a host of local independents around our area that will be keen on finding out what they're doing. Um, and it's going to be a matter of, it's across the board, they're going to be running at something like less than 50% capacity on all screenings. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how um they do it and i've been hearing reports as well where places are going to be staggering start times of films so that the foyers aren't going to be getting filled with people and leaving times so it's going to be an open one to manage you're not going to get the volume of films uh, that you previously used to get even if you're on reduced capacity screenings and obviously the whole thing of uh, booking in advance and doing it all online so you're doing as much of it as contactless as possible is going to be a big factor and for those of you who are popcorn lovers out there uh, me included um, it's a case of what do you do in terms of that snacking and food element which subsidizes what the cinema's takings are by the way because they don't make anything from showing the films it's all from the concessions so the cinemas are showing that they've got to try to recoup some more money by selling snacks and drinks and what have you to make it worth their while. So it's going to be really fascinating to find out what they do. And I just hope it's, uh, it works for them. So we see the cinemas, both multiplexes and independents continue to thrive. It's a nice dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Early days, but let's see. Um, as well, obviously, covering news uh, there, we also go into each of our own individual areas. Um, so Scott specialises in the likes of Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime. So over to you, Scott, now with uh, what you've been looking through. Yeah, so I'm just, I'll just first of all pick out some things that are arriving and leaving on the respective streaming services. So on Prime Video, I've got Suicide Squad. Uh, Sorry, folks. Uh, but if you, ha- if you haven't been subjected to it yet, you might want to check it out just to just to see how good the Marvel films have been recently. Um, <laughs> also, was it, the... uh, was it David uh, Ayer who directed that? Yeah. Uh, let's start the petition now, the Ayer cut. There's been all the whole thing about it's the Snyder thing. cut. Yeah. 
it's genuinely a thing. Uh, people have been campaigning for it, and he also said it wouldn't be as expensive to complete. Because mm. I think uh, the end at the end of the day, Suicide Squad was just a botched editing job, rather than a completely changed different movie. So uh, it's it's feasible. Mm-hmm. It's feasible. Mm-hmm. Let's wait and see how serious are uh, HBO Max. So yeah, let's <laughs> wait and see. Sorry about that, Scott. On a positive note, we do have The Departed on there, the fantastic 2006 Martin Scorsese film, adapted nice. from the Hong Kong film Infernal Affairs, which which is very good. Uh, I would say Depart, I prefer The Departed personally because I've seen it a number of times down the years. Um, also, I have Back to the Future, numbers one to three. I know Graham mentioned his admiration for number two last yep. time. Um, and Leaving Prime on the 30th of June is If, the Malcolm McDowell film, um, which of course came out before Copyright Orange. So um, mm-hmm. that's a that's an interesting film about teenage angst, about a, well a psycho in the same vein as a Copyright Orange in a way. So that's yeah. also a worthy film to see before the 30th of June. Today's the 25th, so you've got five days for that. Uh, subject to when this goes out. I'll try and edit it together as quickly as humanly possible, don't you worry. And uh, just picking up on the date there as well, just to highlight, we are recording this on the hottest day of the year so far, so please have sympathy on us all being cooked for indoors and uh, churning <laughs> this one out. Meanwhile on Netflix, we have uh, Black Klansman coming next month, um, and as well, To Fight Bloods is already on there, the new... Vietnam War film by Spike Lee. I haven't seen it yourself, but I know you two gentlemen have. So have you got any yep. thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Um, I I generally liked it. Um, I thought the second half was much stronger than the first. I think it really struggles to get going because it is such a um, uh, a collage of different sort of cinematic styles from like the first five minutes. So it's very difficult to get the ball rolling in any sort of way with those. But once it starts really literally kicking off uh, towards the end of the film. It becomes more uh, exciting and emotionally resonant, I guess. What do you think, Gray? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be a real hard job to um, follow up Black Klansman, uh, which I thought was amazing. Um, but then to fly Bloods, I thought you, it struggled to start. Um, and because of the choices of how it was filmed, the style of it, um, it was a bit of a clash, and I know that a lot of reviewers out there have said, "Oh, it's the it's two films, the flashback element and the modern day story." But it felt as if there was like three or four different elements oh, in yeah, there as well. It was <laughs> it was hard to juggle. But I mean, for a two was it two hours thirty five, two hours thirty? Yeah. I mean, I didn't feel bored throughout it. It kept kept me entertained because I think the camaraderie and the acting of, of the central characters is so good. That's yeah. what kept me hooked. I don't think the story and some of the choices of how it's filmed are particularly great, but I think the core um, characters are what kept me engrossed. So, yeah, I would recommend it, definitely. It's well worth watching. Yeah, if if anything, just for Delroy Lindo as well, who's oh, just like got yeah. this incredibly uh, unflattering performance as well, because yeah. sort of very early on in the film, you discover that he's a black Trump supporter. Uh, so he's one of the silent majority, as uh, the president likes to call them. And uh, his character's just, what a role for him, you know? Mm-hmm. What a role to have so late in your career as well. Um, so if he doesn't get anything come award season, I'm going to be very, very disappointed. Well, actually, as well, the funny thing about that is um, 
it is the Oscars have also said that they've been making changes to films that are allowed to be in awards contention, which haven't had a cinematic release, which previously they all had to have the cinematic release. So yeah. they're making uh, allowances for things that, as long as they were intended to be released in the cinema, but <laughs> due to COVID nineteen are then coming straight to streaming services. So that could be once again in the lining there for for something for Spike Lee or the certainly the actors uh, well deserving of something. I hope so. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got some great stuff coming on to Netflix in July. Um, I could spend five minutes listening to what's coming on, but uh, I've just picked out uh, a few things to mention. The wonderful Amelie is coming on next month. Uh, the fantastic French film, The Sovereign Audrey Tattoo. Have I pronounced that correctly? Is my French? Yeah. It's tattoo, tattoo. tattoo? I yeah. don't know. It's right for Geordie, and sure, I will not complain. Uh, <laughs> I can't speak French up here. Um, <laughs> Also, the fantastic Mission Impossible Fallout, yeah. which is yeah. one of the greatest action films of all time. I'm, I'm going to say that because it's Oof. just... Yeah, hands down. It's just big claims, but yeah, phenomenal. Good. Absolutely phenomenal. Is that such a big claim? I, I, I re-watched it when it was on uh, premiered on Channel 4 over Christmas. I loved it when it was at the cinema. I re-watched it, and you know what? I was thinking, you know what? I, I, think, Ghost, I think I preferred Ghost Protocol. Ooh. In terms of story, I think the set pieces and Fallout are phenomenal, but mm. I do think the story just kind of tails off towards the end. I lost a bit of interest with the story, whereas Ghost Protocol and some of the other Mission Impossible films, I've been more hooked story-wise to see how it all pans out. So, do you really need a story towards the end of that film, though? That's yeah, the thing. But, yeah, the thing is, so you, you can't really enjoy the spectacle unless you're engrossed in the story, and so. Yeah, I mean, as great as some of the scenes were in Fallout, which were phenomenal, I think the helicopter mm. bit towards the end just over-egged it a little bit, and I just kind of... Oh, dude. But the bits in the build-up to it, I thought, were great, but I think the uh, the earlier, the last, the prior two, was it Ghost Protocol, and what was the other? Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation as well. I think that was really good as well. That's the thing, though. I, I'd, I'd say the same thing that you said about Fallout, but for Rogue Nation... That's just the one with just the most flat third act of any film that I've seen in the past five years. Mm-hmm. Genuinely just like so much promise in the first two and then they just end up sort of running around London for a little bit. Oh, I know. I liked the ending. I thought it was really good. Catching him in that glass box bit. I was like, oh, genius. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was cool. But like, did they really have Henry Cavill shooting a big massive gun out of a helicopter at Tom Cruise who's really piloting the, the helicopter. Yeah, exactly. And well, as well, yeah, from exactly. yeah. from what he does in Mission Impossible, look at what he's now looking to do in M. Maverick for the Top Gun sequel. It's, that guy's going to kill himself one of these days. And we're going to pay to watch it. <laughs> right, lads. Uh, thanks for that, uh, that preview of our future Mission Impossible episode. Um, <laughs> Woo! <laughs> also, I've previously mentioned the, the future trilogy. And what's coming on Netflix is the Jurassic Park trilogy in July. Um, so something I would say better, I think it's fair to say, than the, the current Jurassic World reboot-ish. Um, so yeah, go and check check out Jurassic Park and don't bother with the next Jurassic World film. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's that's basically what's on Netflix coming up in July. So that's not it. There's a lot of other stuff. Over the way there was also coming on there. I believe Burn After Reading as well, so a couple of Cohen films coming on there, and so much more, so definitely get on Netflix in July. 
Now, what I'm mainly going to talk about today is the 2019 British film by Mark Jenkins, Bait. Um, and I saw that on the BFI player extension on Amazon Prime. So important to know it's not readily, readily available on Prime itself. You need the BFI player subscription. But it is a brilliant film um, and it won outstanding debut by a British writer, director or producer at the BAFTAs and it was nominated for the Outstanding British Film uh, category, which, and it lost to 1917. Um, I'm first going to draw our attention to, to a review by one of our listeners, James, a friend of the show, um, and I'll read out his whole review. What he says here is, Bait for me is the best British film of the decade, which is a bold statement, but something I stand by. I think it encapsulates what makes British social realism great through its small stakes plot of the gentrification of a Cornish fishing village, acting as a mirror to both widespread societal gentrification and the losing class war the working class find themselves in. UK industry once again falling in disrepair for the services market. Although I allude to its existence as a social realist piece, it very much transcends the stereotypical construction of such a film through the medium it's shot on. Its images feel timeless, yet unmistakably contemporary through its fantastic use of 16mm that was developed by the director himself. There are some truly breathtaking visuals and editing that elevated to the level of something really special for me. As a final note, although it's an undeniably British film, during a Q&A with the director, that myself and Simon, uh, i.e. Simon on the podcast here, attended, Jenkins Jenkin told the anecdote that the film spoke to American audiences, capturing their experience as well. Thanks very much, James, for that for that uh, detailed uh, commentary. That's that's really the kind of thing we want to receive on the show, really yeah. value mm. listener feedback and listener contribution indeed. Basically, as James alluded to there, uh, Bait is a film about class war in effect uh, basically it's about a scenario that locals in the lake district in the cotswolds and elsewhere other beauty spots uh, might experience in this scenario in this film um, we are in in a cornish fishing village which attracts tourists from the southeast london and etc um during the summer and the setup is that there's a house that belonged to these two brothers, one of whom is Martin, who is the main main character, and some tourists from, well, the southeast, Surrey, or somewhere around there. City um, dwellers. City dwellers, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Camden town lot, I'm going to say, just mm-hmm. to describe the sort of... That's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, fine, but uh, basically there's... There's a number of tourists uh, that moved to this community for a month or two um, over the well, the school holidays, presumably. Um, and there, there were basically tensions between these tourists and the locals in terms of what these tur- tourists might take out of the community because the ones who occupy Martin's former house rent out uh, an annex uh, presumably uh, in yeah. in the garden and uh, one of the bones of contention is what is happening to the revenue wh- whether it's going into the local Cornish community or re- whether it's going back to the southeast and being spent in London um, 
but it's really about the simmering tensions between the two the two groups um obviously the fishing industry is not as strong as it used to be and uh in this film the locals are struggling to make ends meet and um they make their living well martin's brother takes tourists out on cruises around the cornish coast and martin but but martin himself uh, refuses to do this he is trying to make his living on the beach by laying out fishing nets and catching fish without use of a boat and later lobsters which are more financially re rewarding than fish um and the this film just looks otherworldly really it's a it's in black and white it's 60 millimeter it's monochrome and uh and it's very obvious that the lines are recorded uh, in post um obviously to save save money save cost and also to allow uh mark jenkins to have full creative control which is very admirable about this this is his first feature film and uh, from filming it to editing it, he took the reins. He wanted it all within his hands, which yeah. I think is, which obviously is a very pure way of filmmaking. Um, obviously, in Hollywood, there's a lot of editing, a lot of people getting involved. Um, but Mark Jenkins does a fantastic thing here. It's his own thing. All the choices he's made are are his alone. There's no sort of butchering of the film. Uh, that we see so often with bigger budget things and it's just a really fantastic watch it's a it's what the british film should be just really independent and i think this should have won the outstanding british film uh, just because of the technical merits and the the individualism of this film yeah i think i, th I think a lot of uh jenkins creative output really comes from being so limited with his choices because uh, of the film camera that he's uh, shooting on. He's got to sort of make the images as expressive as humanly possible. And uh, the way that he manages to weave them together in this incredible editing job. I mean, I know we were talking about match cuts the other week in regards to 2001 and all that sort of thing. There are maybe six or seven match cuts as good as the bone in the sky uh, in 2001 in Bath. I'm not even joking. Mm -hmm. um, I think you've got me. You've got me hooked there. Yeah, I tell you what, Graham, you're going to love this film. It's got mm. a really great sense of humour. Um, there's some incredible swearing in there. <laughs> uh, it's it's generally really really satisfying, and it does feel like it's literally fallen out of Mark Jenkins' soul. Like James said in his review, me and him went to see it last August or something like that. And um, you could tell how personal the whole thing was to Mark Jenkins because he's really lived and breathed that uh, over the past few years. It, he's got loads and loads of short films on Vimeo as well, which are really worth checking out. Uh, and they all sort of form together this big sort of Cornish cinematic universe um and this is his infinity war if you know what i mean is this the cornesho trilogy hey oh <laughs> fantastic very good way better than what i could have come up with <laughs> uh but yeah what a film i i agree with you scott i think it should have won best british film as well um i'm glad that it won best debut though so yeah at least jenkins off to a really good start yeah it's great it's got that that sort of recognition for a first feature film and uh, look forward to what he has next.
Yeah, me too. Now, Grimmer, I think you already talked about free to air and uh, the the common man's side of the podcast. <laughs> That's me. He's yeah. so relatable. <laughs> exactly. You, yeah, you just you can approach. I'm so approachable. Um, okay, yeah, so my area is looking at free to air. So for all of you who aren't willing to stump up the hard cash uh, for these subscription uh, things, are these are the two can. Um, but yeah, the main things I've looked across in the coming schedules, because the day that we film this, uh, it's, the, it's the day we record, sorry, is the 25th of June. Uh, so coming up also starting at the start of uh, July. In the coming week, or on uh, starting with on Thursday the second. In fact, actually, no. Let me go with Wednesday the first of July. We've got a, a TV film. Um, it was for uh, BBC Two. It's going to be on. Um, it was on nine o'clock um, on Wednesday the first of July. It's uh, 2004's Marvelous with uh, Toby Jones. It's a story of a um, a guy called Neil Baldwin who was like an entertainer and like a, a clown um, who did sort of shows and performances. And he's just one of these characters. It's a real true story based upon this guy who his mother was a cleaner at uh, university and he would just go there and take it upon himself to introduce each New Year students to the campus. And because of this, he then became known throughout the university. He would show up for things. He, people would just like call upon him for this, that and the other. He then also went through just being a likeable guy and just having this sort of quirky character and nature to him. He ended up being a kit man for Stoke City. And the management all agreed that he said he's, he does wonders for the clubs. He tells players like to their face whether if they're performing or not, things that managers couldn't get away with. And he did wonders for the morale of the place, of not just the club, but for the entire city. He was he was the talking point. Um and so it's just a really charming, charming film. Um, I haven't seen it since it was first shown, actually. So seeing it on the schedules, definitely something I'm going to check out again. You know what it sounds like? Mm-hmm. Go on. It sounds like Joker if it had turned out well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, a diff, like a diff, different version. I might have to watch it there and just compare the notes. But thank you for sullying that. But yeah, I'll, I'm sure I'll watch it, enjoy it in the way it was intended. But, oh, you're welcome. Yeah, well, what can Phoenix could be could be a kit man for Stoke City, just imagine. He could have been, or and Toby Jones could have been the Joker. Exactly. <laughs> well, hey, Toby Jones, he can do no wrong. Anything that he's in is <laughs> worth checking out. I'll be coming back to Toby Jones in a moment as well. Um, but another thing that's coming up uh, that I picked out from the schedules is on uh, Thursday the 2nd of July, which is on the Sony uh, Classic channel. Um, as yet, I haven't seen this before, but it's something that's been on my radar to check out. It's the 1974 original of the taking of Pelham 123. Um, so this stars uh, Robert Shaw and uh, Walter Matthau. The basic premise of the story is around um, a group of four guys hold hostage a New York subway train um, until their demands are met. But obviously they're on a subway train, so what idea have they got of escaping? What are their get-out plans? Um, the film was uh, also remade in 2009 um, by Tony Scott uh, with uh, John Travolta and Denzel Washington. Um, John Travolta took the Robert Shaw role as the main, main sort of, uh, hostage taker and Denzel Washington playing the role of uh, Walter Matthau, who was the controller and the detective in the, uh, the booth, um, sort of communicating and trying to negotiate. Um, but from what I've heard of it, it's one of these films I've had on my must-watch list, so definitely going to check that out, and I'll report back on uh, what I thought of that when I get that watched. 
Um, also another one, interesting one coming up. Um, it's, I would say it's one of my favorites, but it's, it's one of my favorite directors anyway. It's um, by Sam Raimi. It's on Friday the 3rd of July on the Sony Movies, the Standard Movies channel at 9 o'clock. It's uh, Darkman uh, from 1990. Um, Liam Neeson starring um, in a role where he just goes almost Nicolas Cage in bizarre Whoa. level of just gurning and acting and just his bizarre nature where he basically plays a scientist who discovers and sort of finds this new way of uh, developing synthetic skin to deal with uh, skin grafts. Um, but he is then targeted and sort of mugged by a bunch of gangsters who then leave him for dead. He then um, recovers, but then he's unhinged by it all, and he uses his discovery of his prosthetic skin to be able to mask himself and repair his skin, which has been damaged badly in a fire. But the thing with it is he can only use the prosthetics for up to 100 minutes before it then just fails and he goes back to his grotesque face. And that's why it's called Dark Man, because he does it mostly at night and he's all wrapped in bandages. Uh, but... It's well worth checking out because it's very 90s in terms of it's an uh, original comic book film, like a conception of comic book, not based on an existing franchise. Also has Sam Raimi just coming up with some of the craziest camera zooms and pans that you've seen since Evil Dead. Um, but also some amazing set pieces where there's a swinging from a helicopter across the freeway. Just like, oh my God, I've not seen anything like this before. Like, not even Michael Bay would attempt <laughs> stuff like this. Um, so it's it's very dated and it's very B-movie slapstick comedy element to it. If you can get past that, there are some just brilliant set pieces in there. Uh, but something I haven't seen in a long while, so I'm looking forward to getting that watched again. Sounds incredible. Well worth watching, as I say. Get past all of the like little kind of jokey bits, but in all Sam Raimi films, there's always that element of slapstick. If you go about the Evil Dead films, so basically it was the Three Stooges, but with gore. So, yeah, you've, you know what you're going into if you've seen Sam Raimi stuff before, but this is one of his more underwatched and underseen films, so well worth uh, checking out. Other area of where I look into is stuff that's on um, free-to-wear as well. So um, on all four, still available at the moment, is a documentary called Three Identical Strangers. And I don't want to reveal too much about it, but I'll tell you the start to try to entice you. But it's well worth checking out because it's one of these documentaries where you think, this surely can't get any stranger, and then it gets stranger. Um, it starts off where it's a story of these three... Well, it doesn't start off with three, but it starts where there's this one guy who goes to college and he gets approached by all these people saying, oh, hey, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? Oh, it's good to see you back. And he's like, back? What do you mean? And then another guy comes up and says, you're the double of so-and-so and takes him off. And he meets this other guy, spitting double. You think, whoa, that's weird. And you think, can't get any weirder, but it's called Three Identical Strangers. It turns out they were three identical um, brothers who were separated at birth through an adoption agency and i don't want to go any further in regards to how it then goes stranger from there but strangers is not just how they are separated it's just strange in terms of what goes on it's well worth getting into because uh, some of the stories of what comes out from it are just unbelievable but well worth highlighting to check out on all four so i couldn't see a time scale of when that as long was available for but um Worth having a check out, definitely. Um, and also coming back to Toby Jones, as I mentioned from 
um, or Marvelous on BBC Two um, is The Detectorists, the series that he was in with Mackenzie Crook. Um, I mean, I think you agree, Simon. You absolutely love it. Have you seen it before, yeah. Scott? I haven't. No, but oh. even the, the mum talks about it. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's it's well, it's a subtle comedy. It's very British in the sense that it's just very. It's not downbeat, but it's kind of quite sort of slow low key. and low-key, that's the word, um, where basically it's the story of these two um, detectorists, uh, not metal detectors, as they don't like to be called, uh, but they're archaeological enthusiasts who like to then troll fields to look for, for ancient relics and things that they find, and it's just them just having conversations as they plod through the fields, what they discover, their talking about their lives and things like that but Loki is perfect to describe it but it's such a subtle nuanced comedy I think the acting in it is superb because it's just the little phrases and the way they react um, their faces their facial expressions um, it's a very subtle comedy where if you just watch it slowly get into it you'll pick up on some of the jokes I've sat and watched it with my girlfriend before and she's like I don't find it funny it's like yeah but you need to focus it's not a thing you can just have on the background the jokes you can easily miss but you get into the characters of it and the story of it. it's just lovely as well beautifully shot in a beautiful part of the countryside. It's, oh, I can't rave about it enough. Well worth watching at this time of year. Um, but then that's my areas all covered. So I'm going to hand over now to yourself, Simon. You're going to be looking at uh, your more uh, niche sort of streaming, streaming services. I am. Uh, and I'm glad that you finished that little bit by talking about a TV show because I'm going to initially start talking about a TV show uh, at the beginning of my bit. Uh, like we said, it's the 25th of June, 2020 which makes it three years to the day since the absolutely incredible part eight of Twin Peaks, The Return aired, uh, which is probably my favorite episode of television in my favorite season of television ever. Um, <laughs> which is quite a nice little jumping off point for what I want to start with because um, obviously Twin Peaks is David Lynch's brainchild, Twin Peaks, The Return definitely fits that bill. Um, and what I'm going to talk about is his film Mulholland Drive. Uh, now, has anybody seen Mulholland Drive here? No. Yes, but not in a while. Right, fair. I was the same. I'd seen it like seven years ago, but I thought I'm just going to leave it for another rainy day. Uh, and then I finally, finally come back to it. So, uh, it's the complex tale of a budding young actress uh, and an amnesiac. And sort of uh, going on this journey through Hollywood's seedy underbelly to unravel a dark secret. That's pretty much all I can say about it because, like late period David Lynch, it's a lot of smaller vignettes that are sort of tied together in this one location that form this much, much bigger picture. Um, in 2016, it was actually voted by BBC Culture as the best film of the 21st century, uh, which is kind of ironic because it didn't actually start out its life as a film at all. Uh, ironically, it was actually uh, a TV pilot for ABC, which was at the time a bit of a strange move for David Lynch because uh, ABC were the ones that compromised the second season of Twin Peaks. Uh, and they had him reveal halfway through the season who Laura Palmer's killer was, uh, and they essentially took it over for a, a large chunk uh, in the middle of the season. Uh, nonetheless, though, they did commission Mulholland Drive as a 90-minute pilot for $8 million dollars. 
But uh, according to Lynch in his book on meditation, which is called Catching the Big Fish, I'd definitely recommend reading that, uh, it didn't come off because <clears throat> I heard that the man at ABC who was making the decision whether or not to accept the pilot or not saw it at 6 a.m. He was watching television across the room while having some coffee and making some phone calls, and he hated what he saw. It bored him, so he turned it down. <clears throat> thank you very much. Uh, this is where... Yeah, yeah, well, thank yeah. you, thank you. Bravo, yeah. bravo, bravo, bravo. Around. <laughs> what, what David Gates said, who will ever know? <laughs> well, you laugh. Mark Frost nearly came to do a, uh, a Q&A at the Clooney a few years ago, so it could happen. Important note, that's not in Gateshead, but in Newcastle, but... No, it's, uh, the, you know, it's a stone's throw away. <laughs> Wrong side of the river. Now you've disclosed where I live to the listeners. Thank you very much, Scott. And which football team you uh, support. Oh, gosh. I'm really narrowing it down now. Do you have any credit outside your window? Anyway, at this stage of the process, uh, this is where the French producers at uh, Canal Plus came in, which is actually a subsidiary of uh, Studio Canal, uh, and they gave Lynch another $7 million to finish off the pilot and then turn it into a feature film. Uh, as it stands, I think you can tell it was originally a TV pilot. It, it does feel a little bit unfinished. You can tell that there was more story to be told, um, especially since the, the time frame of the story at large is fairly small and it does lack a lot in resolution uh, but the final movement of the film does a lot to unravel what we've just seen in a very sort of interesting meta way that really does make it into a into a feature film uh, if you haven't seen anything from lynch this is simultaneously a good and bad entry point to his filmography because you get a big sense of what he's about uh, there's this ironic tone in certain sequences that's knowingly very very artificial that gives him a lot to play with as a filmmaker and as a horror filmmaker, more importantly, as well. Uh, I mentioned last week that this film qualifies as a discomfort movie for me uh, because, as is mostly the case with Lynch's films, you can't really trust a single thing that you see. You can't really figure out which plane of reality he's working with at any current moment. Uh, for example, uh, there's a scene very, very early on where uh, two characters are sitting in a diner uh, and the reason that they're there is to see if something bad will happen. Uh, one of the characters ends up explaining a dream that he had that exactly matches what is going on on screen in the diner. And that dream ends very, very badly indeed. Uh, after he's done describing it, that dream happens beat for beat in front of us as it occurred in his head. And it culminates in just the scariest jump scare I've ever seen in my life. Um, so you've got a little bit of warning there if you have a sensitive disposition, but that, that even when you know what's going on, Lynch actually tells you what's going to happen, and it's still the scariest thing that you've ever seen. Um, that's part of the reason why it took me so long to rewatch Mulholland Drive, because uh, the feeling of dread throughout is often way, way, way too much to handle. Uh, it's not quite as oppressive as his next film, which is uh, Inland Empire. It's actually his most recent film to date. Uh, and his most completely uncompromising film as well. Um, but in Mulholland Drive, there's still more than enough to keep me awake over many, many nights. Uh, if you haven't seen anything else from Lynch, I would prepare yourself here for some really risky narrative moves as well. Uh, I'd say its closest cousin is actually Twin Peaks The Return. Um, I've never actually considered the connection before, but I think watching Mulholland Drive again, I think the key to unlocking both Twin Peaks The Return and Mulholland Drive 
lies in the finales of both. Um, I'll try not to talk about too many spoilers for either, just in case you were a fan of the original Twin Peaks and you haven't seen season three or you haven't seen Mulholland Drive. Um, but all I'll say is that everything that you've seen before the third act of Mulholland Drive or part 18 of Twin Peaks The Return can't be trusted at all as a true view of reality. Uh, they both take a similar direction where uh, different versions of characters you think you know emerge and then they begin to uh, twist the narrative into something else. Not just in terms of story, but in terms of tone. It becomes much more uh, mundane, more tragic, more unsettling. But more importantly, I think it becomes a lot more honest. It feels truer to what the original story was talking about. Uh, I think the endings of both do actually begin to uh, question our relationship as an audience with movies and television uh, and what we get out of it and whether any of it's honest or ethical or if the whole thing's just this big hollow fantasy. Uh, I think Brian De Palma's body double does a very similar thing so uh, that would make a great double bill with Mulholland Drive I think. Um, but what Mulholland Drive tries to do at the same time is reveal uh, the sadness that's integral to all of Lynch's work from uh, the Elephant Man, to The Straight Story, to the Twin Peaks sequel, Fire Walk With Me. Um, and it never really sacrifices anything by confirming what X means, how Y happened, etc, etc. Um, it's entirely possible that if this is your first Lynch film, you'll be fairly frustrated by the lack of any real answers. But that, to me, is the appeal of a David Lynch film, because every time I see one of his films... I go back and I find something new in there that completely throws all my well-defined theories out the window. I've got to go back to the drawing board all over again. Um, most of his films are very, very fluid pieces of work with uh, real mystery uh, deep in their centres. Uh, and Mulholland Drive is definitely a major addition to that canon. Like I said, it's not my favourite Lynch. Uh, I think that's reserved for Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, Mulholland Drive's the film that most people, whether they like Lynch or not, that's the one that everyone seems to be unified over. I'm going to cite Roger Ebert here, uh, who was actually a massive detractor of Blue Velvet when it first came out. He actually came around on Mulholland Drive and gave it full marks. So if it won him over, it'll probably win you over too. Uh, I've got to say, though, to counterbalance the, the feeling of, of dread and uh, uncertainty that Mulholland Drive gives you, just get on Netflix and watch Wild at Heart, which is Lynch's most accessible film. It's his most entertaining film. I know you mentioned it the other week, Scott, but I'm going to bang the drum for mm -hmm. it again. Um, <laughs> and that's definite, definite comfort movie viewing for me. Um, we've actually had a little bit of listener correspondence in regards to Mulholland Drive as well. Uh, we've got Chris, who hasn't seen the film, but nonetheless, he enjoys uh, a song it inspired by Gaslight Anthem. Uh, which is also called Mulholland Drive, so we'll post a link to that after the episode's released. So thank you for that, Chris. Uh, we also have Leo, who sent a, a review of Mulholland Drive to us. He says, uh, Despite sitting in the penultimate spot of his feature filmography, Mulholland Drive feels like the epicentre of Lynch's filmography. It's an adventure into Lynch's dream world on all fronts with its winding structure, bizarre, somewhat prophetic characters, and indescribable atmosphere which envelops you before you've realised it's working its magic, all of which swirls around a backdrop of macabre sensuality. Sounds fun, right? Uh, overdue a rewatch for me, he says. Uh, I'll definitely be returning to it while it's on movie. Uh, so you've got about three or four weeks to watch that, I think. Um, 
There's a lot to be said for a film that baffled so many, yet instead of turning their heads, they try to look deeper, segmenting and jigsawing back together the events of the film to gain a better understanding. Lynch even hilariously teases uh, at this himself with the DVD scene selection screen on certain copies, shirking the idea of a chronological list of scenes, uh, instead favouring a room full of objects which corresponds to the scenes. Apparently, in inverted commas, uh, giving us the clues we need to solve the mystery of this fantastic film. As fun as this dissection can be, whenever I take the plunge into a previously watched Lynch work, I never hope for a clearer understanding, but instead allow myself to sink into that patented Lynch mood and maybe have a slightly different dream than the last time. It's a really lovely review. Thank you for, very much for that, Leo. Um, yeah, like, like I say, Lynch is all about atmosphere i don't particularly care for uh theories that are set in stone with his work either um he's one of those ones where every film's a puzzle box and you find new pieces every single time so uh like i said last week favorite filmmaker of all time what are you going to do about it <laughs> well i've got to admit i've got a lot of catching up to do with david lynch a bit of a blind spot in my filmography um you young kids, you've been having all the time to get into his stuff where I think I've just missed it by where I've been watching other stuff. So I've got... Well, you uh, were probably of the right generation for uh, oh, kids and all that. Just speak... Well, yeah. Um, no, I was too old. No, too old no, 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 it was probably around my time. But I, the thing is, I got into X-Files and all sorts of things like that. But for some reason, just I don't think it really sort of clicked with me. I, I kind of remember it being on, but I just don't... Sat, I never sat down to get into it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of catching up to do. Definitely will aim to then get through his back catalogue at some point. Twin Peaks in particular is the sort of thing that you just need to sort of sit down and, like, study. I remember when The Return was on, I watched it, well, I watched every episode twice a week and, like, even took notes and had discussions on, like, uh, boards about it on the internet and stuff just to kind of rationalise what I was watching. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just unbelievably stunning really satisfying really really scary uh and completely throws all of your expectations out the window if you think it's going to be a big nostalgia fest then you've got another thing coming mm -hmm. that nostalgia is sort of drift fed to you so when it does hit it's all the more powerful but you gotta uh you've got to vibe with it you've yeah. got to study it it was like uh actually i remember uh, it was airing just as i'd finished my degree and I swear I studied Twin Peaks harder than I studied my degree. So, uh, <laughs> Still did all right, though. Two one in Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why not? Sure. <laughs> um, just one thing uh, before I move on. I just wanted to mention very quickly a little film on Shudder uh, called Dogs Don't Wear Pants which is a Finnish black comedy romance about a heart surgeon who's uh, he's, he's, he's stuck in this emotional rut after his wife dies in a drowning accident. Uh, and he literally falls into the arms, or should I say underneath the boot, of a dominatrix who triggers his sexual awakening. Um, it's a pretty bonkers concept, right? Um, oh, <laughs> it's enough. actually a 2020 release. It only had an official UK release date back in March, but here it is. It's already on Shudder. Uh, I'd kind of pitch it as something near the killing of a sacred deer meets Fifty Shades of Grey, but it's not really as dark and disturbing as the former, and it's not as funny as either of them. So, you know, I mean, nonetheless, it's, it's still a very solid way to pass a hundred odd minutes. Uh, 
It's got some really full-on sequences which push the envelope as far as it can while still being uh, classified as a romance. Uh, two lead performances are spot on. I just wish we had a bit more of uh, Krista Kasonen who plays uh, the dominatrix character. Uh, the film is a bit male-centric at the end of the day um, and I think it needs to be a bit more balanced between the two partners to work as well as it does. Um, then again though, there's not a lot to complain about. Uh, it does everything that you want from a film from Shudder to do. Uh, there's some laughs, there's some squirms, there's some uh, envelope pushing, you know, all good stuff. So, Dogs Don't Wear Pants, what a title. Very good, very good. Um, as well, we're just going to wrap up this week's episode um, by talking about um, what we're aiming to do for the next one. Um, we're putting another call out for you listeners out there and you uh, people following us on our social media uh, to have your contributions as well, because um, next episode we're aiming to do a Cinema Memories special. So we're calling out for you guys to come with suggestions of recollections of trips to the cinema, particular screenings that you saw of memory. Um, we're going to chip in with some of our things as well. There's a lot that we've got from our many years of uh, being cinema goers of just fond recollections of particular screenings, particular cinemas, um, things that happened, stories we, we can recall. So all about a homage to uh, us soon be able to make our trips back to the cinema. But just in the meantime, just want a bit of fond recollection of, uh, of memories past of their uh, cinema going adventures. So um, but uh, for yourself and uh, you, Simon, and you, Scott, as well, you've got uh, plenty of ideas for chipping in with as well. But a call out for you listeners out there to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. You can contact us on any different platform you like, really. Uh, we've got a Facebook, we've got a Twitter, we've got an Instagram. Uh, on Facebook and Twitter, we are at Podcasters. On Instagram, we are at Invasion of the Podcasters. Uh, and our email is podcastersuk at gmail.com. And if you know any of us, just drop us a message on our social media and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll feature your comments. Yeah, but so for this week, uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, we look forward to hearing all of your comments to put together for the next episode. So until then, you guys look after yourself and thank you very much. Thank you, guys. See you later. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Bye. Bye.